I'm Betsy Stone, and I want you to think about what your goals are after you listen to this podcast. Spend some time thinking about what you want to have be the outcome as opposed to what the outcome has always been. In Parshat Vayeshev, there are a lot of family dynamics, dysfunction, and frankly, some major sibling discord. Knowing that, we thought that bringing in friend and retired psychologist Betsy Stone would give us an incredible insight into the workings and wonderings of one of our favorite family feuds. Welcome, everyone. We are elated to bring on Dr. Betsy Stone to this episode. Dr. Betsy Stone is a retired clinical psychologist who currently teaches as an adjunct lecturer at HUCJIR. Betsy teaches webinars and seminars and serves as a scholar in residence on topics including adolescent spirituality, Gen Xers as parents, teenagers and their brains, leadership in crisis, and stress and anxiety. She's an engaging speaker whose passion for wellness has brought her invitations to teach all over the United States. She's worked with the Jewish Education Project on multiple webinars and live teaching opportunities, including theme-based trips to Broadway shows, character strengths, and bullying. She also facilitates a groups for rabbis in her local community and is a frequent contributor to eJewish Philanthropy, an online forum for opinion within the larger Jewish community. Betsy consults on program development and community building. During the COVID-19 crisis, Betsy has led webinars on trauma, resilience, and post-traumatic growth for congregations, rabbis, Hillel's, the Central Conference of American Rabbis, the Jewish Teens Funders Network, Hebrew Union College, and the Jewish Education Project. She wants it to be known she does not like chocolate in any form. We're also excited to welcome Jill Goldstein-Smith as our question-answer guest today, and as always, Hello to my co-host. What's up, Gabe? Hey, Amanda. And hello to our favorite ever producer, Edon Waldman. How's it going? Welcome, Betsy. Welcome, Jill, to the show. Thank you so much. It's, just, it's really a joy to be here and to be here with Jill. I'm excited to be here with all of you and Betsy, too. Gabe, with a Parsha named Vayeshev, you know, meaning he settled. I assume that like not very much happened during this Parsha. And so it should be really easy for you to give a 30 second rundown, right? You would think so, but also you would be wrong. Before we get started with this Parsha rundown, I want to give a quick content warning for both sexual coercion and sexual assault. All right, Idan, we're ready. Okay. Jacob, along with his flocks of people and, you know, actual flocks, settles in the land of Canaan. Joseph, the elder son of Jacob's late wife Rachel, who was actually the only one he wanted to originally marry, is a big tattletale. He tends to the sheep with his eleven brothers, but frequently reports back to their father. Despite this behavior, he is clearly Jacob's favorite, and all of the brothers know it. How do they know it? Well, Jacob decided he needed to visually set apart his favorite son, so he made for him a coat of many colors. Or, if you're reading the Hebrew, a striped shirt. But apparently, even though Andrew Lloyd Webber can make an award-winning plotless musical about felines, striped garments are simply not dramatic enough. Shout out to SpongeBob SquarePants for being better than Andrew Lloyd Webber. Anyway, Joseph, along with his fancy garment, is not done being a brat, so he tells his family about some not even a little bit subtle dreams he's been having wherein he is the center of the universe and all of his family members in the forms of wheat or celestial bodies all turn and bow to him. His brothers, shockingly, didn't like this very much, so the next time Joseph comes to spy on them, they say, let's kill him. But the oldest brother, Reuben, says, maybe let's not do that. So instead, they steal his coat and throw him in a pit. Reuben secretly plans to get his brother out of the pit later, but before he can, the brothers spot some wandering Ishmaelites. They take Joseph out of the pit and sell him to the travelers for 20 pieces of silver. When Reuben realizes what his brothers had done, he is very upset and doesn't know what to do, so the brothers hatch yet another plan. They take Joseph's rainbow coat, or striped shirt, and slaughter a goat and dip the garment in blood and lie to their father, claiming that a wild beast had devoured Joseph, leaving only a bloody coat. Jacob is sad, and Joseph is taken to Egypt and sold to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officers. New story enter Tamar, a beautiful woman whose first husband and second husband, Judah's eldest and second sons respectively, get killed by God, leaving her childless. 
with Judah unwilling to give her his third son, Tamar tricks Judah himself into sleeping with her by covering herself in veils and dressing as a high-class prostitute, getting herself pregnant in the process and keeping Judah's staff and seal in lieu of proper payment. When the neighbors begin to gossip about this unwed mother-to-be, Judah threatens to have her killed, but Tamar, classy as she is, sends Judah back his staff and seal, saying that the owner of these objects is the father of the unborn child. Nice. Back to Joseph, still in Egypt, a slave to Potiphar, who purchased him from the wandering Ishmaelites. God is with Joseph, and Joseph does a really good job at whatever Potiphar has him do, so Joseph becomes head slave, which is nice, I guess. Also, Joseph is really pretty, so Potiphar's wife tries to seduce him, but he is a good man and does not accept her advances, so she tells Potiphar that Joseph had assaulted her, and Joseph is thrown into prison. In prison, Joseph meets Pharaoh's chief baker and chief cupbearer, or butler. They each have crazy dreams, and Joseph interprets them to mean that in three days the chief cupbearer will be restored to his post. The baker, not so lucky, will be killed. And Joseph was right, but the butler forgot about Joseph, so that's where our story ends. A dead baker, a forgetful butler, and Joseph still in prison. And that's Parashat Vayeshev. And I am going to dream about you doing this, Gabe, because that was the most ridiculously quick um run through of a Parsha that is this dense and this kind of full of family drama I have ever heard. Mazel tov. <laughs> Kol <hakavod. laughs> Thank you. My my heart is still racing, to be honest. Idan, how'd we do on time? Just about three minutes. Three minutes, <sighs> two seconds. I'll, I'll get it under 30 seconds one of these days. No, I will not. <laughs> I know that we talked a little bit about the fact that you've been doing so much work, especially during the COVID-19 pandemic. And so I'm curious, what is the insight or belief that's driving this work that that's causing you to help so many people during such a difficult time? Well, thank you for saying that. Um, I actually, um, I, what drives me and what has always driven me is the absolutely firmly held belief that human beings are capable of change, that um, we can grow, and that when bad things happen, they actually have life lessons in them if we're willing to look. So when I look at what's happening around us right now, um, in, in a time of COVID, in a time of racial injustice, as we careen towards a new president, um, all the crises that are both personal and communal, um, I hope that there are real lessons that we're learning. And my, my, what I want to give, put in the world is some understanding that there are things we can learn from this and that the things we learn are really very important. They're the way we make um, the last eight, nine months and then subsequent four, five, six months and all these deaths, it, it's the way we pr- create value out of, out of tragedy. Um, I think that there are lots of um, things that we are learning that are actually very useful for us if we, if we figure out how to hold on to them. I'll give you an example. Um, one of the things that we're learning about, for example, remote schooling is that there is a subset of kids who are thriving in virtual school and who were doing very, some of those kids were really doing poorly in live school. Um, that there are things about the high school experience which are quite challenging and difficult for people. And that as we, as we are in this bizarre time, um, if we learn that there's something about high school that works for certain kids and doesn't work for other kids, I want us to then go into the, into the post Corona time, whatever that looks like, um, with using that knowledge for the betterment of the wellness of children and families. Um, And I actually think that one of the things that's striking about wellness right now is that the kids who used to look like they had it all are having a whole lot more trouble than the kids who used to look like they had, who used to look really bad. And so I'm saying, I say to youth professionals all the time right now, pay attention to the kids you used to not pay attention to because you used to not worry about them. Worry about a new set of kids. Um, and I, and so I, I think that, that we could learn something about the way high school works that could make high school work better. 
Um, there, um, David Breifman at the Jewish Education Project says that this was not his expression, but he talks about COVID keepers. And the things that I'm learning that I want to hold on to that have that I have learned through COVID. So that may be that I had I was busy with stuff that didn't matter to me. It may be that I spent time with people who I didn't care enough about and who didn't care enough about me. I think our in many ways our lives have narrowed to um, the things that really matter. And I hope when all is said and done that we can actually pinpoint those things and pay attention to them going forward. That there are life lessons that have to do with um, change that, that change can be externally generated or internally generated, but um, human beings are capable of change when we're given the opportunity and when we create the opportunity. Um, Churchill, said, famously said, and I actually am not sure when he said this, um, and it probably matters, but um, he said, never let a good crisis go to waste. Um, and I I really feel like at this moment in, history, in human history and in the history of the Jewish world, that part of my job personally is to um, make sure that this crisis isn't wasted. Um, that this crisis actually yields something that's worth holding on to, um, that goes beyond Instacart, because Instacart might be worth holding on to. <laughs> um, and I and it's interesting as I was listening to Gabe go through the parsha, um, I actually think that Joseph. That, that Joseph takes a really long time to learn from the crises that he participates in that happened to him that he creates. They are crises that he imposes and then there are crises that happen to him. Um, I think it takes him a really long time to understand that um, he is not a victim. He is an actor um, and can begin to act in ways which, which show growth. So he, his relationship with Potiphar's wife, where he doesn't say whatever I want, I should have, um, is the re is the reaction of somebody who's actually beginning to assess what's right and wrong in the world. I'm I'm giving maybe giving him more credit than he's due. Um, the Judah, when he realizes that he has um, impregnated his his daughter-in-law, it's a little bit of a Chinatown moment. My sister, my daughter-in-law, my sister, my daughter-in-law. Um, when he realizes he's impregnated his daughter-in-law, um, he actually does have regrets and not about having done so, but about um, having accused her. And um, we, and so we see in Judah um, in this, in this um, sexual encounter, which leads to the, leads to King David um we see that he takes that that crisis is not wasted. And in fact, without the crisis of Judah and Tamar, without the crisis of Judah refusing to give Tamar her um, the, the third son, to whom, which she is really due to by the biblical law, um, that when he straightens his behavior up, um, we, get, we get the psalmist and the king. Not only the psalmist and the king, but as we recite in Lachadodi every week, Al Yad Ish Ben Parzi, Peretz being one of the sons of Judah and Tamar, the Messiah, this divine figure who's supposed to fix everything, uh, comes out of this line and comes out of this really troubling moment. Um, I I am curious because there you talk about there being a lot of time a in between. Judah and Tamar and, you know, the Messiah, um, but also in between Joseph's actions and Joseph realizing that what he did was wrong, in between Judah's actions and Judah realizing that what he did was wrong. There's a lot that goes on in that time. And as you said, there's going to be a lot of time in between the grief and the trauma of COVID and us making meaning out of this time and us growing and changing because of the things we've learned in this time. So I'm struck by two th two things here. 
um, no, three biblical moments. One is the ellipsis in the in when when Cain kills Abel, um, and we where we just there's they go out in the field and then there's an ellipsis and then somebody's dead. Um, the second is the three days between um, Abraham and Isaac leaving and getting to to um, the Akedah, that there's they they travel for three days and we don't know what happens in that travel time. But how could there not be a conversation that goes like, hey, dad, what, what are we doing? Um, and then the 40 years of wandering that there that we there are times when we all both individually and communally are in the wilderness. Um, and what does it mean to be in the wilderness? Well, I think what it means to be in the wilderness is to be unsettled enough that I'm actually available for change. That when I am not, that when I am comfortable and things are going as I expect them to go, I'm not asking a lot of questions. Um, 2020 has been a time of um, ongoing um, difficult questions that range from the sublime to the ridiculous. Do I, am I entitled um, to use Instacart when it what it does is it endangers another soul to pr to protect myself? Um, that's a wilderness kind of question that I would never have asked before this because it didn't. I didn't need to ask it. Um, the wilderness questions are the questions that are, are questions of discomfort. Um, what, are the, what are Joseph's wilderness questions? When he is in the pit, when the Midianites come and take him, when he is, and then when he's in jail in, and the baker and the cupbearer are there, um, does, does he want, how does he demonstrate from dreams A to dreams B that he is capable of thinking beyond himself? The bumming bar is, is is an essential part of that. The wilderness matters. Um, and Jill has just typed in because, and it's important that what has to happen for us to um to do that growing is that we have to be vulnerable and we have to be scared because scared and vulnerable go hand in hand. They are inseparable. I used to say to my kids when they would say that they were frightened of something, I would say, well, you're so lucky because it means you get to be brave. Um, scared, vulnerable, bravery, they all come together. And right now we are really vulnerable. Um, what are we learning? What? How will we interpret dreams differently when when we've absorbed the lessons of today? You know, I'm I'm so glad that you're bringing up this concept of Bamid Bar, of this wilderness, this liminal space, but specifically that word Midbar, because it's one of my favorite drashes, that there's this idea that Midbar, the wilderness, comes from the same root as Lidaber meaning to speak, and that Midbar, this place where uh, where Hagar meets and meets God, and God sees Hagar, and where Moses is told to pick himself up and go to Egypt and free the people, and where the people subsequently receive the Torah and then wander and become a people in some sense, in change and grow, as you're saying— there's something about speech that's incredibly important in uh, in the wilderness. And there's something important about that. And so I, I love the words that you're using to talk about it, this idea of vulnerability and bravery, this idea of wilderness and speaking. Um, I, I just wanted to comment on that and uh, just say how much I appreciated it. I love that. And, and, and what's striking is in those three examples that I gave you of what are effectively all ellipsis, um, we don't know what people are saying. We don't know what they're saying to each other and we don't know what they're saying to themselves. Um, what, you know, th that the lessons that I learn are the lessons that I absorb into myself, not the lessons that somebody, you know, delivers to me. If I said to you, the lesson of this time is that we have to do more work for racial justice. Well, yeah, 
but it's what I say to myself that that and what I say I'm going to do that makes a difference. Um, you can push me, I have to digest it. And that's all happening in the ellipsis, in space between, in the liminal space. Um, but I, for human beings to change actually requires liminal space. It requires um, a sense of, mo of movement from one state to another and the discomfort that that entails. And it's funny, we, when we think about rituals, we actually think about rituals and rites as being liminal spaces. I don't actually think they are. I think they're acknowledgments of, of, part, of a part of a journey. So I don't think that the act of getting married is liminal. I don't think you feel more married 20 minutes after you got married than you did 20 minutes before. Um, I don't think the act of becoming bar bat mitzvah is liminal. I think what they are is they are events which mark liminal time, but they are not liminal time. Liminal time is much longer. Um, you have to be in the pit for a while before anything liminal happens. Um, and and even the the experience of becoming a parent. So we go through this liminal experience of giving birth or watching someone give birth, but we don't feel like parents the moment that that child is placed in our arms. We don't say, oh, oh now I get it. Um, that is, it is a marker of a liminal time. The liminal time takes more time. You've got to sit in the pit for a while. Um, and, and, th and that's why the ellipsis matters. And that's why the speech is internal. Um, that, that um, because it has to do with my carrying, it has to do with my wearing a different coat um, that, um, that is not just something that is placed on me, but it's something that I actually take on and, and make skin. I think that that is really hard. And I know that one of the things that we've talked about in this podcast before is this idea of identity and taking on identities that sometimes can feel like they're forced upon us. Like when we talk about a little bit of what happened with Jacob in the past between, you know, what happened with Isaac and, and pretending to be Asa. And one of the reasons that we were so excited to have you on specifically for this portion was because of the family dynamics that came into play. And we believe that, that your background in terms of working with, with teens, working with adults, working in a therapeutic background really allowed you to see this Parsha in a, an extraordinarily unique way. Um, and so one of the, the questions I have for you is, do you see this Parsha as something that could help impact your work? Or do you read this Parsha in a different way based on the work that you've done? That's a great question, Amanda. Um, the, it, it, who is it? Tolstoy says that all happy families are alike and all unhappy families are different. In fact, all families are different. And all families are different from themselves. Um, because the family, the family of this week is different than the family of last week and next week. Um, families are, um, are, are fluid entities. Um, and the most, the healthiest families allow for enough fluidity, but not too much fluidity. Um, what happens in this family, um, in this family going all the way back to Abraham, um, is is a story of a family that um, that that lives in the ellipsis, that lives in the wilderness, that does things that the people around them do not do. They are strange. They are really strange, um, and they're different from other people. Um, their differences um, make make them. I don't know. In many ways, it feels to me like they are constantly trying to fit in. Um, they, you know, the the story of Dina is a story where um, the brothers are are the brothers are the brothers trying to be like the Shechemites or are they, are they not? Um, there's there's lots of places where this is a family that doesn't feel comfortable with itself, um, where where love is can be distorted. Um, the value of love is really interesting that it comes up in this family because the, love is a, a relatively modern concept, um, the, uh, uh, particularly partner love. Um, we've got a 
a family that is desperate to make connections, um, but makes connections very often at the expense of someone in the family. So there is, this is a family where there's always somebody left out and somebody elevated. Um, how could this be good for a family? In fact, it, what it doesn't, what they don't see is the, is the different things that each family member brings in. What we don't see is um, a sense of, of character strengths and values that, um, that treasure certain aspects of one person while treasuring different aspects of another. Um, it's actually a pretty, um, it's not a really deep, thoughtful family, except in their relationship with God. Um, one of the things I think is striking about this particular Parsha, actually, and I don't know if you noticed this, Gabe, but God's not present. This is one where we don't, you know, it's not like, it's not like a lots of our Parsha where God comes in and says, oh, by the way, you need to do this. Um, this is one where God is relatively silent. It's one without guidance. And this is a family that actually needs a lot of guidance. It needs, they need to, they need to learn. Um, if they were in my office, I would be doing very different things with them than what God does with them. Um, at the same time, they, there are values, the value of the relationship with God, the value that we don't see in this Barsha, um, the, the, the power of sibling rivalry and siblings feeling deprived is extraordinary. Um, this is not obviously the first time we've seen it. We see it in every generation of this family. Um, and there is, there is a sense of limited resources that transcends, that is not about food, it's about care. Um, that, I think it's really striking and maybe particularly striking in a time of COVID where there actually is more space to care for people if we, if we emphasize that, um, if we attend to that. Um, the, they do what they think is what they've always done. Um, and it, it takes a really long time for them to shift gears um, and, to, and to consider whether or not what they're up to has been useful to them. So the question was, are there things about this family that I would think of with other families? Um, I actually think there's more about this family than I would think of with organizations that um, that institution, this family, particularly in this set of this part of the story, this family functions like an institution. Um, it functions like a, like an institution that's not very healthy. Um, and it, and there isn't the same kind of evaluation of, um, what's the plan here and what's our goal and what do we have to do to make it happen? It's much more, we just can't stand that kid. Let's, let's hurt him. He's a brat. I think so. I think so. It was funny. You you happened to answer a follow-up question that I had before I got a chance to ask it, which I was more impressed by, of this idea of when organizations, especially right, especially during this time of COVID, where taking risks is almost more beneficial because it's COVID, right? It's a pandemic. When are, when, you know, we can do it once, and then if people don't like it, we never have to do it again. It's interesting to watch people cling to that idea of, but we've always done it this way. Um, and I think one of the challenges that um, we find specifically in this Parsha, and, and I think even in organizations, is that you have a brash new leader that comes in um, who isn't interested in the way that things have always been done and is interested in finding kind of a new way to do things, but doesn't care about how he's doing them. He's leading, unlike you know, uh, just as Ruth Bader Ginsburg suggested, he's not leading in a way that makes people want to follow him. And so I'm curious in terms of that, in terms of leadership, how one would be able to come in with a brand new power structure, with a brand new dynamic, and possibly have led this family in a different way? That's a great question. So one of the interesting things about this family and the dynamic is that um, the power exists in the crowd. It does not exist in the people. 
in the individuals. Um, the brothers are not brother. They're not individual brothers. We don't hear the litany of their names. Um, we hear the brothers. Um, they are a, effectively, they are a, a wicked minion. Um, they don't, um, we don't really see them as individuals in this. Um, and I, that feels much more like w the way we behaved at the beginning of the pandemic, where what we did was we took everything we'd ever done and just moved it online. We, we didn't ask questions about whether or not this is the right thing to do, whether or not it's the useful thing to do. Um, I think that, um, for example, lots of religious schools, particularly supplemental schools, um, just tried to take their curriculum from the live environment to an online environment. Um, and what we really needed in the first couple months was not content, it was connection. Content happens after connection. It does not happen in, it can happen in parallel, but it never precedes it. It just, it doesn't work when it precedes it. Um, that is um, content without connection is, um, is webinars that are that you can watch later. That it doesn't really matter whether I watched it or not, um, and maybe I'll learn something important. But if I really want somebody to absorb something, I, it has it happens in relationship. It happens in the space between people. Um, the brothers, there's no space. They're just all they're a clump. Um, Joseph, there's lots of space, and he. Um, does nothing to bridge the space. In fact, he destroys bridges. What I think in, is really interesting institutionally um, is that this time has to make us think about what we deliver to people and what they're actually looking for. So I would say that the vast majority of congregations would say that in the first month of COVID, their Arab Shabbat services, if they did, um, if they did virtual Arab Shabbat services, that they were attended by a lot more people than would normally be sitting in the pews. And that we're getting back to the sitting in the pews group. And I think we're getting back to the sitting in the pews group because we, because we're offering the same thing, which is a traditional Arab Shabbat service not something which necessarily builds connection. Um, and there are lots of ways for us to build connection that this that, that could be our COVID keepers. They could be the things that we hold on to when this whole process is over. Um, and we say, this, was, this really mattered. We have to keep doing this, even though um, we can be in person. Um, the what what wise institutions did was first they scrambled and then they breathed and that that's an essential part of resetting um, that some of us just never did. Um, they breathed and then they said, what's our goal here? And if our goal here is, for example, to produce B'nai Mitzvah kids that can do this virtually, that's a very different goal than if our goal is to build a community. And, and while we can have um, goals, accompanying goals, um, it's easier to have accompanying goals than it is to have competing goals. Um, and so if you're a person like me, you know, I'm a shrink, I believe in relationships, I think they're really important, um, then I have to look for the ways in which I build bridges with other people and with other with aspects of the communities in which I exist, um, knowing that each of us in, lives in multiple communities and that all of those communities demand some commitment, um, so that I'm always competing for you know kind of the, the amount of goodies that can go in any one basket. If an institution wants to learn something from this time. I think it has to be, who are we at our core? Who are we when we're not just doing what we do? Um, what, is our, what is our core goal and what is our core character? Um, institutions have character um, and that those characters are, are made and maintained by people who live in those institutions and the people who are transients in those institutions. Institutions have character. Does your institution have the character you wish it had? Joseph's character at the beginning is not Joseph's character at the end.
Um, and the only way from him, for him to get from that initial character to the later character, and then even later the character he has when, when he insists on Benjamin coming to him, is through pain, um, is through suffering, uh, not suffering, but through pain, through some personal loss, that as he loses things, he has to reevaluate what he's doing. And the, our institution should be doing the same thing. I mean, there's there's a whole field of, of psychological thought that's called post-traumatic growth, not post-traumatic stress disorder, but post-traumatic growth that looks at what happens to people who experience a trauma, and we're all experiencing a trauma now, um, and who learns from it? And what kinds of things do they learn from it? Um, and I want us to be thinking about what kinds of things we want to learn from this, not simply how much it sucks, because it's easy to say, this is really hard. Uh, but what this is really hard, and what am I going to learn? It's a totally different beast. I'm wondering if you have for us, for the audience, uh, you have the floor, you have the pulpit, you have the microphone. Uh, what is your call to action for uh, for our audience, for your listeners? So it is at core, use your gifts for good. Be kind, be gentle. Everybody around you is hurting. And in fact, your pain is important because it's yours, but their pain is important too. Um, and I, I think that there is a real temptation when we're hurting to say, my pain is what matters. Um, our pain is what matters. Um, and so if, if by being kind, I can help you learn something, then I will help me learn something. I really, I really believe I, I am not a particularly mystical person, um, but I really believe that we, that for me, this is where I meant I was meant to be right now, that I was meant to be teaching people about trauma and growth in this moment in the Jewish world. Um, I don't know why I would be meant to be doing that, but I, I believe I am. And if I can remember that other people are human and that their humanity matters um, and that even the people who drive me crazy are important um, and that I matter more when I allow myself to matter less. That when it's not about me, my impact is much more powerful. So I could have spent the last half hour telling you about my COVID experience, and it's different than yours. But what would good would it do? I matter more when I allow myself to matter less and be kind. It almost sounds simplistic, but it, it, it's one of the great gifts to me of Musar has been that understanding that I matter more when I allow myself to matter less. Gabe, what would you say is your les lesson from this? Oh, wow. That's a great question. I'm a shrink. <laughs> to be fair, so is my mother. So this is not a new <laughs> concept for me. Um, I'm, I'm struck by how this Parsha doesn't have a clear, happy, tied with a bow ending that whereas other Torah portions end with a death and then a genealogy, or they end with some kind of, there, there's a clear break in the story. The end of our Torah portion this week is Joseph sitting in prison, having helped these two men, one of whom is now dead, the other whom forgets Joseph altogether. Jacob has, Jacob is, Jacob believes that Joseph is dead the brothers have done this horrible thing. It's very unbalanced. It's very, it's a cliffhanger. It truly is. And there's no, um, there, there, there's no seat. There doesn't seem to be any kind of light at the end of the tunnel for any of these characters. And yet we know that the story continues. We know that there's going to be a Torah portion next week and the week after that and the week after that. And we know that the story, uh, goes somewhere else. And so 
especially in this time of COVID, which feels um, which feels liminal, but also feels um, like time just stopped existing. We talk about COVID time. We talk about pandemic time not really existing or not making any sense. I, I feel that we're in that cliffhanger moment, that we really are waiting for the next Torah portion and we're waiting uh, for next week's reading with bated breath. Um, but it's also valuable to sit in this Torah portion and to really to, to really dig into the characters and dig into the stories and the individual relationships because there's something there. and that can be just as powerful as let's change the let's let's change the channel let's go to the next chapter of the story you know what you're saying gabe is that the crisis has value and that that if we if it was tied up with a neat bow would we have to struggle with it at all we would just say okay cool it's done um, the crisis in and of itself, the, the sitting in discomfort, it, yeah, it's not fun, but it has value. And that is, um, I don't know, that's the piece of me that, that it, I am driven by the understanding that crisis has value. Speaking of value, I get the priceless prize of getting to introduce Jill Goldstein-Smith. So Jill Goldstein-Smith is proud to live in Sunnyside, Woodside, Queens with her partner and one-year-old. She works at Foundation for Jewish Camp and, as an aside, once upon a time was a bunkmate of mine at the URJ Kutz Camp and focuses on MESH, mental, emotional, and social health, professional development, and Jewish education. In her downtime, doubt it, Jill. She's studying educational leadership at JTS. She wanted to make it emphatically clear that she self-identifies as a chocolate lover. (laughs) Betsy, I think you and I agree on a lot of things, and I have so much to learn from you. Um, But we can can agree to disagree about chocolate, and that's okay. I'm comfortable with that. We can wrestle with that, and maybe there's some meaning in that wrestling there, right? (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. Don't throw me in a pit, though. <laughs> I, I will not throw you in a pit. And I, if I did, I promise that I would throw down Twizzlers and the sort and not chocolate. I really appreciate that. And definitely not Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. Oh, fine, fine. I will save them all for myself. Um, <laughs> but I do have some questions for you. I wrote so many down, so I'm going to try to just say them succinctly. Um And I wrote down so many notes that I was learning through this conversation, too. So thank you for that. Thank you, Jill. Um, My first question, you know, you shared about, um, I think it was Gabe asked this question um, about the family in this Parsha. And you said that this family and maybe even the broader Jewish family needs guidance. But in this Parsha, this family needs guidance. And I'm thinking about in this moment, especially um, in the world, and thinking about the people asking for help and asking for guidance. And I'm curious if you think that people are these days better about asking for guidance, asking for help, or if you think, hmm. Now I'm thinking how to ask this question better. I think I know what you're going to ask me. So can I try to answer it? And then if I get it wrong, you'll correct me because I love that kind of conversation. Okay. Um, So I think under duress, when we're asking for, first of all, I want to parse asking for guidance and complaining. And those are really different things. So it may very well be that I come to you and I say, I can't stand it when this happens, blah, 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 blah. And the last thing I want you to do is to tell me how to fix it. Because what I'm really enjoying is being miserable, or I'm really enjoying just complaining. And I don't at all want to say that that's an invalid or a bad use of my time. I actually think that that's one of the ways that we build bridges with people, is we talk about things we like and we don't like. um, 
there is a huge difference between that and actually wanting somebody to give you suggestions about what to do. So I might say, for example, I really, um, you know, I, I don't have any milk in the house. And, and you would say to me, well, you can go to the store or you can back to Instacart. Or I could say, I don't have any milk in the house. The people who are in my house have been drinking all this milk. And what I'm really wanting to do is just complain. Both are valid. So when we ask the question of what is it, what kind of guidance do people want? Let's make sure that we're talking about guidance as opposed to complaining. Um, and let's not belittle the complaining. Um, so that's point one. Point two is that um, my ability to hear guidance and um, to work with guidance, and those are two different things, um, is is deeply impacted in a bad way by stress. That the more stress I'm experiencing, the less I'm able to actually hear your guidance. Um, because the, human beings, instead of approaching difficult situations by becoming more flexible, tend to approach difficult situations by becoming less flexible. This is not productive and it's actually not useful, but nobody ever said we were logical or reasonable. Um, so what happens in, in a time like this is that we think about what it is we're supposed to do, and I put that in air quotes, rather than what it is, what kind of outcome we're trying to produce. The outcome I'm trying to produce is actually the roadmap for what I should be doing. Um, and so back to my silly milk example, if I want to have cereal with milk, then the outcome I'm trying to produce is to have more milk. But if all I want to do is, is connect with you by complaining about somebody that we both know in common or about the fact that the milk spoiled after six weeks, um, then I, I have a different goal. If my goal is connecting with you, it's a very different goal than if my goal is solving a problem. And I think that that is the kind of unique experience of this time is that um, we are being forced to evaluate our goals. Um, so I work with this group of congregational rabbis that is a local group that I've been doing Zoom with them for now eight months. And when they started talking about high holidays, I said to them, don't look at the, at the Moxor. That's not where you start. Do not start with prayer. Start with your goal. What do you want people to walk out of their kitchens experiencing? Not out of the building, but out of your kit, their kitchens. Um, what is it that you want people to have happen to them around their dining room tables? And it's a really different question than what are we supposed to do? So I think that a crisis actually, because it ungrounds us, it gives us the opportunity to look at some of those problems differently and think differently about um, what's the goal as opposed to what's the predicted behavior. Did I answer your, did, did I write your question? Did I answer your question? <laughs> you certainly are making me think about when someone's going through a crisis, you, you mentioned about like closing and I'm thinking about like when I get scared of something, I might tense up and almost like hunch my shoulders, clench my fists, but actually where the opportunity is, right, you spoke about before, about um, out of vulnerability, out of um, their teachings in many cultures about like out of brokenness. Is it the Leonard Co Cohen song? I love that song. The, that's where the light shines in and mm -hmm. thinking about that that's where the opportunity is. And that it sounds like what you're saying is that we have to be also really intentional about that and that that's really the opportunity for especially Jewish organizations right now to be intentional because it's just so easy to go through and to clench up and say, let's just do things the way that we've always done because it's easy because I'm scared because I'm closed and we just have to get through this. It's like putting up barriers. Yes, and and I, that's exactly right, Jill. And I think when we say we just have to get through this, what we're trying to do is to return to an earlier state of homeostasis, an earlier stable place. Um, we're not going to get through this. We're going to be changed by this. I'm already changed by this. I hope you are too. Um, and the goal is not to be who I was in January when when life felt 
both much more complicated and much simpler. Um, the goal is to learn something from this about my world, about my relationships, about myself, about the institutions that I interface with. Um, and for those institutions and for families, because families are a form of institution, to be thinking about what do we want to be when this is all over? That's um, different for families with losses, but with with deaths, but we've all had losses. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Jill. Wow, that was great. Um, and I'm thinking about how, you know, you talked about returning to your goals and encouraging people to say, what is your goal? And thinking about asking, returning to asking the question of what's your why? Mm -hmm. And the opportunity that a question versus a goal statement brings us to. It's just, it's exciting to me. Not that crisis excites me, but it, I guess in some ways it does. Does that make, well, maybe I, that's why I'm a camp person. I like the stress. <laughs> um, so I think what crisis does is it provides us with opportunities. And that when everything is stable and flat, everything remains stable and flat. Crisis is an opportunity. It's pain. It can be a painful opportunity, but it is opportunity. Um, it is opportunity for us to reevaluate ourselves. It's opportunity for us to reevaluate our relationships. Um, it's opportunity for us to see strengths in ourselves that we might not otherwise have seen. Um, and the question, I think, right now, I think the question, not just right now, but the question from the beginning of this crisis, this ongoing crisis, has been um, not. It's, the question hasn't been, where am I going to get hand sanitizer? It's really, who am I going to be and how am I going to be in the world um, not about hand sanitizer? So who am I going to hold? Who's going to hold me? And how am I going to do that? Um, not simply, how many times did I wash my hands today? My question... This is not necessarily about who I want to be, but is about how to help people prioritize asking that question. How do we help organizations, families, individuals prioritize? And it might not be in this moment, I recognize, but as we go through this moment, to prioritize reflecting on the trauma to be able to make space for that growth. Okay, that's a fabulous question. So it's the antithesis of hoarding, right? Hoarding is something that we do because we're panicked. Um, and goal setting is something that we do because, we, because we're visionary. And the, the problem is that being a vision, panicking is much easier than being visionary. Um, it doesn't actually require as much of me. It, I just have to keep putting one foot in front of the other. The way we make people reflect on it, actually, the way we encourage people to reflect on it, and let me use that word very intentionally, um, is to acknowledge how scary it is that this is harder than hoarding toilet paper. This is harder than looking for yeast. That thinking about who I want to be and who we are and what will make us an institution that is worth surviving, not just an institution that survives, is about taking the time to do something that's really challenging. And frankly, if you're like me, really interesting. It's much more interesting to think about being worth surviving than it is to think about surviving itself. So when I think about, is the institution worth holding on to? What about it matters? Um, that's a much more interesting question than which fundraiser are we are we going to virtual fundraiser are we going to do? Um, what is it about you as a person, as an institution, as a family, as a group of friends? What about you is worth it? And then investing in that time and energy and thought. Um, I think it is, uh, look, I, I think in, in times of plenty, um, to, just to pull us back to the Parsha, in times of plenty, we don't think about our goals. We just revel in what we got. And, but here we are in a time of famine. What is it that we, 
who do we want to be in a time of famine? Um, and I think it's people who are kind, institutions that produce not widgets of value, but people of value. Um, it, the goal has to be that we grow because the, the antithesis of that is horrifying, to, at least for me. And that is not just the creation of liminal moments, and I think that's one of the thing that, things that camp does really well, but the maintenance of people as they, tra- as they traverse liminal time. Gabe, with a partial like Vayeshev, I feel like Betsy, Jill, Idan, and I, we just want to settle in and enjoy like a nice drink um, and just take a breath. Any shot that you have something delicious for us in this week's Midrashic Mixology? You know, it just so happens that I do. <laughs> We're very excited to present to you an amazing Technicolor cocktail, the favorite Sangria. In a pitcher, combine one orange, halved and thinly sliced, one lemon and one lime, each thinly sliced, one of each of your favorite varieties of red and green apple, each cored and thinly sliced, a cup of grapes, the variety of your preference, a cup of blueberries, and quite frankly, any other colorful fruit that you feel will benefit this Kahila Kadosha. It's a very customizable drink. Pour in a quarter cup of brandy and a full bottle of dry red wine like a Rioja or a Cabernet. Stir to combine and leave in a cold pit like Joseph or, more practically, a refrigerator so the flavors can meld and mingle in that liminal space. To serve, add ice and chilled lemon-lime soda to taste. For an alcohol-free version, this is essentially just fruit punch, so skip the brandy and swap out the wine with a cup each of orange juice, lemonade, pineapple juice, and water. May your cup of many colors runneth over. Lechayim. That's wonderful. And Jill, I'd just like to point out to you, there is no chocolate there at all. <laughs> no, but but the sangria would um, taste so delicious with a side of chocolate, no? <laughs> but maybe for you, Betsy, you can have a Twizzler straw. Oh, that would be wonderful. I could just have a Twizzler straw, but or I could have it all of Gabe's stuff. <laughs> I'm glad you appreciate the efforts. <laughs> with that we've uh we've hit thank yous and closing cues believe it or not so betsy jill idan gabe what's a dream that you look forward to coming true in the near future betsy yes okay so i have a personal dream which is that i really 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 want to see my in-laws who are 92 years old and live in dallas and i live in connecticut so um, my personal dream is that I get to be with them again. Um, this is, it's been a very scary time to be this far away from people I adore. And my communal dream is that January 20th comes and that, um, and that potentially our government actually functions in a different way. I'm sorry to get political. And my big picture dream is that we figure out what we learned and that we use what we learn. Jill? I wasn't prepared for this question. Um, mm, In similar theme to Betsy, I think uh, a more immediate dream is for my parents to feel safe enough. Um, They're in Florida and we're in Queens um, to be able to hang out with their granddaughter soon. And a larger dream, I think, is that a larger dream that I have is for people to feel um, safe enough in whatever communities they are to be their full, true selves. And for there to be space for that to also safely evolve. Gabe? As a cantorial student, one of the ways in which this pandemic has been incredibly difficult is that though we continued having services, though we continued uh, singing, we can't do it together. And that's really difficult. 
um, for me, where I find spiritual fulfillment in service leadership in the role of the cantor is hearing everybody sing along. And that can't really happen on Zoom services. Uh, so my dream is uh, it, my my dream is to hear everybody sing along and to be able to sing in community again. Idan? My dream is a very low-stakes dream, which is um, I look forward to a day, hopefully soon, where I can take two days off a week and not work. I hear that, Idan. Um, mine also, my, my smaller one is also a little bit low-stakes. Um, I dream and am looking forward to the day where my puppy grows a little bit bigger so that we can actually run in Prospect Park together. Right now, she's still got short little puppy legs, which makes it like a little trickier. Um, I think my bigger dream that I hope comes true in the near future is similar to Gabe's. Um, and, and truly, I would actually argue similar to, to most is this ability to come back together and, and to have some source, uh, some sense of gathering, some sense of community that is not just through a screen. Um, and so I look forward to that day. And really, if, you know, I, I look forward to the ability to like be face to face in conversation with people. And, and so with that, Betsy, if people want to continue the conversation, if people want to keep talking to you and, and talk things out, how can they best find and follow you? I'm actually, I actually spent part of this weekend working on a website. So I'm going to try to make that happen. <laughs> but um, <clears throat> my email is Betsy Stone, PhD, B-E-T-S-Y-S-T-O-N-E-P-H-D at Gmail. Um, and there's going to be a website that's going to be, I don't remember what we called it, um, <laughs> but it'll be there someday. I'm getting very close. It's, um, it's very hard um, to, to try to do a website without any photographs of me teaching. And I can't locate photographs of me teaching. So I'm, I'm going to have to do some screenshots. That's my plan for this week. And someone will teach me how to do it. So. Um, I'd love to hear from anybody who would like to pursue this conversation. It has been an absolute joy for me to be here with all of you um, and talking about stuff that I'm really moved by. Um, so thank you for to Jill for asking me questions, to Amanda and Gabe and Don for asking me questions and having me be here. So um, quite an absolute joy. So Betsy beat me to the punch. Normally I'd say any last words, thoughts, concerns, or jokes, but you were on it. And so with that, I will say thank you, Betsy, so much for being here. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Jill, for, for taking an hour and a half uh, off of one-year-old baby duty to uh, come hang out online. Thank you, Gabe, as always, for uh, being an excellent co-host and risking your breathing for the, the benefit of our audience and our listeners. And as always, thank you, you're the hero that we desperately need and hopefully deserve. Thank you, producer Schroner, Edan Waldman. Um, and thank you to all of you for listening in. Wow, I feel like Betsy gave us a lot to think about. You know, one of the things that she brought up was that Joseph is not actually a victim in his own story. He's an actor. And I think most of the time when we hear this, we think about the bad things that happen to Joseph. You know, his brothers literally ditch him. He gets sold to the Ishmaelites. He, you know, gets seduced and then called out incorrectly uh, by, by Potiphar's wife. And then he ends up in jail. And as you mentioned before, forgotten about by the, by the butler, by the baker? Butler. Baker is dead. I totally agree with you. And I think that what Dr. Stone spoke about so beautifully was that even in those moments where he is a victim, there is an opportunity for growth within those moments. There is an opportunity for meaning. We're all going through a period of grief, a period of mourning, a period of trauma. And one of the steps of dealing with that is making meaning. Granted, that takes time and it takes sitting in it and it takes wrestling with it. But that's something that we all get to do, and it's something that we can all do together. Yeah, and that's something that Betsy talked about as well, this idea of when we're given the opportunity, anyone at all can be capable of change. And that can be an individual, it can be an organization, who knows, it could even be a movement. 
I think one of the most difficult things that we think about during this time is how little control we have over what the future, you know, has in store for us. And I wonder sometimes if it's possible to think about it from a different perspective, from a flipped perspective of what do we have control over, even if that's what is the smallest thing that I can do today and what is the biggest thing that I can let go of. Definitely. You know, one of the things that came up in the discussion today was that the pandemic is forcing conversations that aren't new conversations. This idea of revamping Jewish education to be something other than a B'nai Mitzvah factory isn't a new conversation. It's not a new idea. But this trauma is forcing us to look at it in a different way. We're in a pit. It gives us the time and the space to really look at ourselves, both individually and communally, in a new way. I think that's true. And most importantly, the question that Betsy really brought to the table was, what are we delivering to people? And what are those people actually looking for? And so for us, we're always interested in your feedback, in your opinions. And if you want to reach out to us, feel free to shoot us an email at drinkinganddroshing at gmail.com or check us out on our Facebook account at Drinking and Droshing, our Instagram at Drinking and Droshing. We'd love to hear from you. L'chaim. L'chaim. I'm Betsy Stone, and you're listening to Drinking and Droshing, Torah with a Twist. Go have a glass of wine.